Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we are going to go over chapter 11 which is titled Time, Timelessness, and Omnitemporality. So as we discussed last time when we talked about the contingent omniscience view where God doesn't necessarily know the exact future but knows all the probabilities or possibilities because the future doesn't exist and the crux of that argument we mentioned was the A theory of time and so that's why it's essential now that we talk about time in general and to start us out, I'm going to just read the, I think it's the first thing in the chapter. It says, Unless we carefully define the different notions of time, space, and space-time involved in a discussion of the divine timelessness, we will become confused in massive equivocations and analogical distortions. Though definitions usually are not possible, it is necessary to at least lay the conceptual groundwork for the discussion which will follow. And so that's the goal of this chapter and our discussion today. We're just going to try to lay out some different views of time and how they relate to God and different reasons to adopt each of these views. All right, in our discussion of time, this has been in the human thought pattern or people that discuss, you know, different philosophical things since a pre-Socratic era. People such as Parmenides, Zeno, and they talked about different notions of time, and then Plato also came in and had some notions of time. And all of these had influence on Augustine, who, as we have discussed before, is probably the most influential thinker in Christian theology, at least as far as developing the classical view of God and timelessness in general. And I don't know, I, I didn't really plan much for this intro, so is there anything you want to just jump in and say before we go into the everlasting time? I don't think that any of the Greeks actually developed a notion of divine timelessness the way that it was later elucidated by Anselm or Boethius or even by St. Thomas Aquinas. The Greeks, however, had notions of static being, for instance, in Parmenides, the notion that there is a static being where everything is kind of present at once in the static being were explored. And, of course, you have the paradoxes of Zeno dealing with infinities and time. So they explored these ideas, but the notion of a divine life that is contained all at once in a single eternal now was not really something that they elucidated. All right, cool. And, yeah, we'll go into different views that fall out from them as well as other thinkers as we go on here. All right, so everlasting time is the first section, and... I believe, at least as far as these first few sections go, Aristotle is the primary thinker here that we're reviewing his ideas, at least. And to start us off, there's a quote that says, First, events in time are bounded by a beginning and an ending. An event begins and ceases to occur. The experience of temporal things is bounded by a beginning and ending in the sense that they experience only what is actually occurring at the temporal moment in question. Second, there is an ordering of before and after to the events which occur in time. Not all events occur simultaneously, but only in successive order. 
So what's critical about this is that there is this kind of mind-independent matrix in which events occur, and events occur in relation to one another. And so what we're looking at is the nature of time, and Aristotle defines time in relationship to events. This is contraposed to what would be a more modern view of defining time by instance and asking, is there a duration to an instant? If there's a duration, is there some kind of a minimum duration with an instant so that we have a beginning and an end, and immediately after that instant is done, there's the next instant. But when we get to the theory of absolute time, we'll kind of talk about that view. It's important to keep in mind that Aristotle is thinking about the way the natural world works and how he's observing things. And so what he's doing is developing kind of a scientific, if you will, view of time that is one that is based upon observation. All right, great. And then let's just bust view these next few here. All right, Jake, if you'd like to lead the discussion on measured time, the next section, go ahead. Measured time, as far as I understand, is an understanding that if there's no material objects, if there's no way to measure time, then time doesn't actually exist. If you could go a little bit into that, Dad. Sure. Measured time is that which can be measured by reference to some kind of a clock metric. And so it requires this kind of physical regularity, if you will, something that occurs at regular intervals or which can be measured over a certain distance so that you can say between these two points it takes this much time to travel. So the theory of relational time is in relation to material objects. And so in a material world, time exists because we have some kind of a time metric, a clock that has regular intervals of movement, or we have certain extended bodies, and we can measure the distance and the time that it takes to travel between any two of those physical points. But it's relational in the sense that it requires a relationship of material objects. And you've kind of already covered the theory of relational time, that it's a relation between two events or two material objects to discern time. And then there's two separate claims that are kind of going on here. There's an epistemological claim, and then there's an ontological claim. If you could go more in depth on those. Well, what the epistemological claim of the theory of relational time is telling us is we're not asking if this is the way it really is. We're just asking, to the extent that we can know about it, can we measure time? There may be a limit to what we can know, but there may be something that exists even beyond that. In, in other words, there may be a truth that's independent of what is available to us, to our knowledge. And so the epistemological point merely asserts that we can't know of a time metric or measurements unless we have some kind of a constant metric by which to measure the temporal distance or the temporal intervals between events. And so we know that because we observe. But it doesn't purport to argue that there's really no such thing as time, even if we can't observe it. It merely is saying there's a limit to what we can know. The ontological claim goes beyond that. The ontological claim is saying, independent of anything that we can observe, there is in fact a time metric. We may not know what the metric is. I mean, you know, before people know about crystals, which is what our best metric is now, or quasar, because they also have a specific type of a frequency, there would still be these frequencies or these metrics, even though we didn't know about them. So what they're saying is there's, there would be a time metric built into the universe in some way. And there's an ontological fact about, you know, what an instant is and, and how long the smallest duration would be. But it seems to me that the ontological claim can't be justified because the mere fact that we cannot have an idea of what a measurement would be unless material objects existed doesn't seem to tell that there is no time. Because somebody could imagine 
such regularities, and they may be able to even have an idea of what a regularity would be, even if there were no such regularities that existed in the actual world. So it seems to me that, that we need to adopt the epistemological claim and not the ontological claim. Okay, and that being that even without material objects, there's still time, and we just wouldn't have a way to measure it. Exactly. So what we're saying is we would be limited in what we could know, so the epistemological claim is, is one that's justified, but we wouldn't be able to address the ontological claim at all. Okay, that brings us on to temporality, and we'll hop back over to Corey to introduce that. All right, I'll have the quick quote from the book, we can talk about it. Says it seems that there might exist a mode of time which is not measured time, but which is characterized by a successive and distinct mental events. Before this, you had talked about a Cartesian mind, which again, that's just from the philosopher Descartes. What it means is that we have a disembodied mind that isn't extended in space in any way. It's an immaterial reality. Right, and he comes up with those things just so that he can talk about that mind-body problem of the disembodied, nowhere-in-time mind influencing the physical world type thing. But anyway, you're not saying that, but or unless I'm getting that wrong. No, I'm not claiming that there are such things as Cartesian minds. I don't need to affirm it or deny it for purposes of what we're talking about. I'm just saying I can imagine that such things are possible, and if they are possible, and it seems to me that there's a form of temporality or successive events, but there is no metric. In other words, there's no clock that has specific one-second intervals, and there's nothing in the universe that might be regular that has measurable intervals. But still, I could have thoughts one after another, even though they may take different measures of, of if there were a metric, what would be time. The only thing I have is temporal succession. I don't have a time metric. And so what I'm talking about would be merely a mind where everything is not present at once. The thoughts occur successively, but there isn't a metric by which you can measure time. I would call that bare temporality. Okay, yeah, and we're, and we're talking about that just to show that without material objects, there still can be a notion of time without having to measure the different objects and stuff like that. So that's why we did that, right? Right. What I'm saying is there can still be an idea of before and after and successive events, even if there are no temporal objects, even if there are no material or physical objects which would create a time metric for us. All right. Next is the theory of absolute time. And this is a direct contrast to the relational view. Again, relational view meaning time has to be in relation to some sort of material object to exist. In the absolute view, um, it views time more or less in the common sense way that we view time of our ordinary experience. And so on the absolute theory of time, time exists whether we experience time or not. It exists mind independently, I guess we would say. Basically what we just talked about is time consists of a time of timeline of successive instants, whether there are changing material objects or not. So even if there were no change, there would still be some sort of passage of something. Something's successively happening, I guess. Yeah, let me give you a thought experiment here. So say I have a clock that exists for exactly five minutes, and then there are no material objects, but I have simply a mind, and I note that exactly five minutes after that, in terms of no material events occurring, still the interval that is would be five minutes, and then there are new material objects that come into existence. I have a null period in which no material objects exist as a time metric, but I can still have an idea of time. And the theory of absolute time is saying, well, out there, independent of my mind, there actually is this kind of platonic metric that's out there of instant. There's a smallest instant. I don't know what it is, but let's just assume there is one. 
And so for every instant, every instant has a beginning and an ending. At the end of every instant, there's a new instant, which has a beginning and an end. At the end of that instance, there's no beginning and end. So independent of anything um, occurring in the world, there are these instants out there in platonic time, and they exist independent of our minds and independent of the physical reality. And when we talk about time, we're talking about fitting things into that before and after of instants and measuring them by whatever those instants are. And we could come up and say, well, the smallest instant is a nanosecond. And that's the smallest we can measure. I'm not sure that's the case. In fact, I'm sure it's not given quantum physics. But So just say the quantum time interval is the smallest that we can possibly measure because everything breaks down at that point. So there seems to actually be a possibility of such a smallest measure, I suppose. All right, Jacob, do you want to help us talk about simultaneity? Sure. So simultaneity in the book you have... On both the relational and the absolute views of time, there's an absolute temporal now or simultaneity of two events. And I guess this is important when we think about different points of reference or how we're viewing things. I mean, what, what exactly is simultaneous? If you could go a little bit more into that. Sure. So we have this metric out there of instance, one before and one after the other. We have the smallest instant. There's always an instant before and an instant after, and we fit simultaneity into whether or not something is simultaneous with this particular instant. So if two events occur, and they are both occurring during this smallest time interval, and it's the same smallest time interval, then I have an absolute simultaneity, an absolute time. And the reason they're simultaneous isn't that there's some relation between the two events. There's a relation between this event and this particular instant of time, and this event and that same instant of time, and that makes them simultaneous. And again, just reiterating that two events occurring at the same interval are necessary simultaneous in the time on the absolute view of time. Yeah. So what we're talking about is, again, you know, we're talking about essentially Newtonian time and the way things were thought of before the advent of Einstein. All right. We'll go ahead. And I think that's all we need to say about simultaneity for now. We'll go back to relative space time with Corey. All right, and so, like we just said, that was pre-Einstein thought. Now we're going to kind of go into Einstein's famous theories of relativity. There's the special theory of relativity and the general theory of relativity. And they're different, but they both maintain that for observers in motion relative to one another, there is no absolute simultaneity. The result follows from the notion that nothing travels faster than the speed of light, and the speed of light is the same constant for all observers regardless of their motion or frame of reference. Right, so go back to the train. Remember we talked about Brigham's train. And I'm on a train that's moving nine-tenths the speed of light. And I've got an observer who's to the side of the tracks watching the train go by, and I've got an observer who's on the tracks. And there are two lightning strikes, and the observer that's on the train sees them occur at the same time, because from his inertial frame of reference, they're equidistant from each other. But the observer that's on the side of the tracks sees the lightning strike at the front of the train hit the train before the lightning strike at the end of the train because the train is moving in to the space where the lightning will strike. And so for the observer on the side, the lightning at the front of the train hits before the lightning at the back of the train, whereas for the person who's on the train, they both hit at the same moment because they're equidistant from each other traveling at the speed of light. And so what we're looking at now is time that it is measured relative to a, an inertial frame of reference. So the observer on the train is in one inertial frame of reference, and the observer who's to the side of the tracks is in a different inertial frame of reference. 
And simultaneity is different for each of them because what we're doing is measuring physical events. And because time travels at essentially 186,000 miles per second, no matter where you are, we're going to experience things differently depending on how fast we're moving relative to the events that are occurring and what their relation is to each other in space and time. And this is actually measurable. You know, you've got a time clock measurement where if we put a clock in a rocket, and they've actually measured this with jets, you send a jet around the Earth and it comes back, it's actually slowed down due to the movement. You can measure light moving around. uh, They actually had this kind of a measurement. It's the first one they did, measuring light as it moved past the sun. It got slowed down because it was moving in the gravitational field. So the general theory of relativity deals with gravitational fields. Special theory relativity deals with these inertial frames of reference that I already talked about. Now we have a theory where there is no kind of simultaneous now that is true of all observers. Given where we are in our inertial frame of reference, all there are are inertial frames of reference. And we can only define what is simultaneous from within an inertial frame of reference. This obviously becomes very important when we're talking about a being that stands outside of all inertial frames of reference for a timeless being or for a temporal being where there's a before and after, but who exists in all inertial frames of reference and has every perspective. So now we're going to begin to blow our minds. We're going to say, oh, okay, what does simultaneity mean when I'm talking about a being that is present in all inertial frames of reference? It seems like I draw a contradiction because in this frame of reference, he has to observe the two lightning strikes being simultaneous. And in this inertial frame of reference, he has to see them hitting one before the other. How does he reconcile that? And so that's the, the task. All right, good. And then I did just an example from a movie I know you didn't like, but it just helps illustrate this kind of thing for people if they're not super versed in the old space-time and mass and stuff. The more mass something has, the more it bends space and time around it. And if you saw Interstellar, they went to this planet. It was really close to a black hole, and it had like a super massive bend in the space-time. And so when they were on this planet for like an hour, it was like 30 years on Earth or something like that. Uh, It wasn't, that's not the exact measurement, but basically it's just that. So you could be on this planet and for you it's one hour, but for another planet, 30 years has just passed. And so that's the problem we're dealing with here is if God is dealing with both, then how on Earth can he act at the same time for both of them? And so what we're looking at is, in science fiction, you're talking about people who move in and out of different frames of reference, right? The inertial frames of reference. So what's interesting is the pilots who flew the plane around the Earth were actually on the order of about one second younger than the people who stayed behind. So the question now becomes, I'm I'm going in and out of frames of reference. There doesn't seem to be any problem entering in and out of frames of reference. It's just that biological processes travel more slowly if you're in motion relative to a stationary, what appears to be relatively at least a stationary frame of reference. This may just be a measurement so that time actually stretches out when you move because it takes longer. And here's why. If you're in motion, it takes longer for the light to travel from where you're moving away from an event as opposed to when you're moving into it. And so what you do is you begin to stretch time. And so it takes much longer if you're in that kind of an inertial frame, rather if you're to the side. But if you're in the frame on the train and you're moving faster, you move into the time. And so the time interval is actually shorter (laughs) for you. Because if they're both occurring at the same time when you're on the train and one hits after the other, the inertial frame of reference on the side of the train is a longer interval 
than the one that's on the train. And so when you begin to move, what you do is you shorten time. In other words, it might, as you say, take five minutes, but for somebody who's in the inertial frame of reference at risk with respect to that frame of reference, it seems like it's taken a lot longer. And that's because the events actually are stretched out. And your time metric, your clock, your biometric, I'm going to call it your biometric, the processes in your body actually are slowed down relative to person who's who's moving. That might be why you get tired when you're in the air, but I doubt it. <laughs> but think about it. We move in and out of these different inertial frames of reference. We actually have seen people who do that. And, you know, our bodies adjust to that with no problem. But you can imagine it's like, well, okay, we've talked about God knowing everything um, on the view of contingent omniscient. God knows everything that's occurring right now in an A theory of time. And now we've got a problem saying, oh, what is now? Because I can't define a now that's true of everybody in every inertial frame of reference, it seems, on the theory of relativity. All right, and then, Jacob, if you want to kind of lead the discussion in this next part, but I'll jump in. We can kind of tag team it. The next section is defining timeless eternity. And so we're going to try to come up with kind of the definition that people that believe in this timeless eternity type concept believe, and then what the implications of that are. So go ahead. Yeah, right. Uh, since coming up with the theory of relativity in these different initial frames of references, now there is this possibility of there being a timeless eternity, and those who view it that way, one individual in particular, uh, read a little bit here. Uh, and well, hang on, correct sorry, me if I'm the, this, this isn't due necessarily to the theory of relativity because most of these thinkers are way before that ever came out. This is just back into thinking about God. Let me tell why this is relevant to timelessness, and it has primarily to do with something we'll talk about the implications of timelessness, and that's the theory of Stump Kretzmann. And what Stump and Kretzmann are suggesting is that given the theory of relativity, we escape a certain very straightforward argument against timelessness. And here's the argument. It's absurd to believe that in the same moment that Neil Armstrong is walking on the moon, that Washington is also crossing the Delaware. It's absurd to believe that while at the same moment Washington is crossing the Delaware, he's also buried in Arlington Cemetery. I don't know if he's buried in Arlington, but, you know, somewhere around there. So... <laughs> It's absurd to believe that he's alive and dead the same moment, but here's the situation. If the theory of transitivity or mathematic transitivity holds, if Neil Armstrong is walking on the moon simultaneous with God's gaze in the eternal now, and Washington is crossing the Delaware simultaneous with God in the eternal now, then since A equals B and B equals C, it follows that A equals C. That is, they're all simultaneous together. So Washington crossing the Delaware simultaneous with Neil Armstrong walking on the moon and Washington buried in a cemetery is simultaneous with Washington crossing the Delaware. But that's just absurd. Nobody can believe that Washington is dead and alive in the same moment of eternal now or reality. And so what Stump and Kretzmann say, well, this theory of transitivity for eternal events doesn't hold. And it doesn't hold in the theory of relativity either. There is no time that is a now for every inertial frame of reference. And so you can't make this argument based upon transitivity. And so transitivity doesn't hold for temporal events. And we can show that it doesn't hold for temporal events on the theory of special relativity. So now your argument is invalid because I can demonstrate that the rule of transitivity ought not be applied to these kind of time-like events. And that's why it kind of opens up a way of speaking again about timelessness because it takes care of what is the most straightforward obvious common sense argument okay and if i understand it correctly it's you're able to go back to an analogy you gave earlier if you're changing someone's 
initial point of reference from being inside a parade to taking them up on top of a hill where they can see the entire parade going on. Suddenly, it's no longer everything happening at once. It's seeing, you know, you can see the end from the beginning, even though the whole parade is there. Right. Even though from the perspective of one in the parade, the beginning of the parade is way out of his sight and occurred long before he got there. And the end of the parade is way behind him and will occur long after he's there. Nevertheless, for God up on the hill, he sees them all at once, the beginning, the middle, and the end, and they're all present to his view all at once. Now, that's a spatial analogy to a temporal analogy, and that is to say, temporally, it's the same. God observes Washington crossing the Delaware in the eternal now, and he also observes Neil Armstrong walking on the moon in the eternal now. And in this especially eternal now, it's not a contradiction to say that he observes both at the same moment, and that doesn't entail that they both occur at the same time, even though they're both simultaneous with his gaze in the eternal now, because the eternal now is analogically in a different inertial frame of reference. All right. You brought up some thoughts about, and I want to make sure I'm pronouncing this correctly, is it Boethius? Yeah, it's Boethius. So Boethius apparently understood eternity to mean that God is not limited or bound by any time, and that all temporal moments are possessed at once in the divine life. And that in God's life, all temporal instances are present all at once rather than successively. There is no before and after. There is no measure time. There is no space and time. There is only the eternal now, which is pretty much what we were talking about. But then you said Stump and Kretzmann, they come up with a few reasons why that doesn't really hold up. Right. And they call it temporal eternal, you know, simultaneity, essentially. Their theory was, for a period of time at least, I think, very influential. But what I wanted to emphasize in defining timeless eternity is we shouldn't think of it as simply being this single temporal instant, or what to us would be a single temporal instant. God exists in that instant, and that's all there is. Rather, God's special eternal now includes all times all at once. And it's not merely time it is that there's a divine life, the way Boethius defines it. There is a kind of life. Obviously, he's not talking about a life with temporal processes like we talk about it. What he wants to say is that God possesses all at once equally the whole completeness of an illimitable life. And what does that mean? It means past, present, and future never pass away. I mean, think of the sweet memories that you have of being a child. And it's like, wow, I'd like to go back and live those again. And there's so much I've already forgotten that I'd really like to remember. Well, what Boethius would say is, well, God possesses all of that. It's all just as alive and real for him as in the moment it was occurring for you then. And it's not lost. It still lives. And so God has this completion of life that isn't marred by the sadness of a life that is passing and receding from memory and being lost. And the friends that we had in time are being lost to us. And all the sweet experiences that we had aren't lost to us. God possesses all of those. So God has this kind of divine completeness that we lack in being temporal beings, but this eternal being has this kind of illimitable completeness. And I think that's what Boethius was after. He wants to say that the divine life is so complete and full that it just completely transcends the kind of life that a being in time lives. Okay. I think we covered defining timeless eternity pretty well. I mean, there's a lot more quotes that go in the book, but uh, I think we've pretty much covered it, unless there's anything else that uh, you feel would be relevant. I'll put them in the notes that I put on the website. You can read all those quotes there. But yeah, I mean, we've covered the core of it, I think. And I just think we ought to know that Stump Goodsman had this notion of what they call ET simultaneity, that is eternal temporal simultaneity, where God 
you know, his eternal now is simultaneous with whatever temporal now exists. In fact, it's simultaneous with all temporal nows, past, present, or future. And so they have this way of getting around this very persuasive argument, and I think it's a major accomplishment on their part to be able to say, see, we're not stuck with this argument, we've defeated it. And I think they did essentially defeat that particular argument. All right, and now we're going to move into the implications of divine timelessness. And this was technically part of the last section, I guess, but unless Stumpin Kretzman somehow defeated this, and I'm just not understanding, are we to understand, at least on their view, that they believe that God sees, let's say he's just observing somehow how he perceives this human life. This, at least to me, can make sense during the entire lifetime of a person, and if that person ceased to exist after that, then still it would make logical sense. Where it's not making logical sense for me is that, in Christianity at least, you believe after you die that you go and live with God, basically, and you're in heaven, you're with God, and get resurrected and all that. And so at the same time, you're next to God and you're living, and that does not make any sense to me. You're Well, that's because what you have is this kind of space relationship that you're building in. In the tradition, God isn't in space. I and mean, to say you're next to God doesn't mean that he's in one space and you're in the next space next over to him and you're looking at each other. God's life, the fullness of his divine life, is so different from anything you could possibly achieve. There is never sitting next to God. You may be in an eternal existence, but your eternal existence will never be God's timeless existence. So your eternal existence means that your life doesn't end. It means that there's a before and an after, but it goes on for endless duration. What God's eternal life means is something quite different. It doesn't mean endless time. What it means is the fullness of all past, present, and future retained in God's life in one instant of the eternal now. And so it's important to understand what the people who held this view were thinking. These are very bright people, and it's important to go out of our way to accurately represent what they're saying. And so if I were sitting next to God, that obviously would be impossible. But from their perspective, there's no such thing as being next to God in the eternal now. It seems strange to us that God can see in the same moment that I'm in first grade, I'm in fifth grade, and I'm in my coffin. And they're all equally real to him in that same moment. But that's just the way the eternal now is. For us, obviously, that's not the case. And so to say that it doesn't happen in our frame of reference, therefore it can't happen in God's frame of reference, is to misunderstand what they're saying. Back to another criticism I don't think escapes either, is just that, I guess, in the classical view it's not, but it just seems God would basically be an observer, unless you go with Thomism and God is the cause of everything, but even, I don't know. Here's what I can't make sense of. Okay, we've talked about this analogy from the theory of relativity. The the guy's on the train, and the lightning hits the front of the train. It hits the back of the train. He sees them happen at the same time. God sees them happen at the same time, too. And he also knows that there's an observer on the side, and for him, they happen at different times. But for him, everything's happening at the same time. What I don't understand is how there can be any individuation of events or even making sense of events that are in process. So, How does God see the entire process of the lightning issuing from the cloud, moving toward the earth, and then hitting the earth, and the train moving, and so forth? It seems to me you have to have this notion of every single temporal event that has ever occurred being true in a single motionless snapshot that is open to the divine gaze. And so all temporal events are brought about by God are contained in a single divine act performed at a single non-temporal instant of the divine now. So God does this single act, and from this act, everything that occurs in history follows, okay? He may not directly cause it to follow, but it all follows. (laughs) So 
what we're talking about is something that is so different than the way that we live. We've got to be very careful to parse this as so as not to misstate what they are believing and to put it into perspective where we can see that very, very bright people accepted this view, but at the same time recognize there are real problems with even elucidating this view in a coherent way. And there are, and everybody who deals with the notion agrees. Just elucidating this view in a way that is coherent is very difficult for us. But, you know, elucidating quantum physics in a way that's coherent to us is pretty difficult, too. That doesn't make a fault. It just makes it difficult. Well, let's kind of move on with the core of that. That was just kind of my side thoughts there. If you could explain this quote here, I think I had a question about it. Stump and Kretzmann, the people we've been talking about, assume that the law of transitivity does not apply to events observed as they actually occur simultaneously in the eternal now, though past events have ceased to occur and future events have not yet occurred in the temporal past. Is that what we already talked about, or is there something else there? No, that's the notion of E.T. simultaneity that Stump and Kretzmann developed. The question that we need to talk about is whether or not, and when we get to problems of divine timelessness, will the notion of Stump and Kretzmann hold up? In other words, will their analogy with theory of relativity actually hold up when we scrutinize it? And the answer is that even in the theory of relativity, for events that are not here now but are elsewhere, and they're in the future light cone of an event. So there are certain events that can't be simultaneous in any inertial frame of reference. Their relationship is such that there isn't a frame of reference that includes them both in simultaneity relations. There are, in all inertial frames of reference, certain events that will be future, <laughs> okay? And so the notion that Stump and Kretzmann have that this analogy of eternal temporal simultaneity means that all events could be simultaneous isn't one that will be supported adequately by the special theory of relativity and its reasoning. In other words, the analogy to special theory of relativity and divine timelessness breaks down because it is an analogy. They're not asserting that the frame of reference in an inertial frame of reference is actually like God's eternal now, because not all events are present in any given frame of reference. There are some events in any frame of reference that you have that will always be future. That's why we talked earlier about the light cone. You have some things that are in the absolute past, some things that are in the absolute future with respect to any inertial frame of reference and even with respect to all inertial frame of reference, unless you adopt the B theory of time. The B theory of time is actually a logical way of speaking about time. So instead of having a tense before after like, you know, this man died before men walked on the moon. Washington died before men walked on the moon. Let's take that assertion. That's true, but there's a way of retranslating that into a B theory of time. And what you want to say is that there is an event that occurred at T1, which logically occurs before another event that occurs at T2. But I can put those in such a way that they are both simply statements, and they're not really statements of time at all. They're simply statements of relationships to one another that don't assume any kind of tense. And so we have a tense sense of time, which includes before and after, past tenses and so forth. And we have a tenseless sense of time where we never say that happened in the past. We just say this occurred at T1 in relation to T2, and that's a tenseless way of putting it. And then let's go into some other implications of it. A lot of people adopt kind of like a modified classical view because a lot of people come to God and they don't like the parts of the classical view, meaning he can't be influenced in any way and he's not interacting in time. 
Well, they're like, no, but he's still timeless. Even Mormons, I think, sometimes take that view. And so what the implications here are is if you adopt divine timelessness, it also entails that God is immutable in the strong sense that neither any being distinct from God nor even God himself can change any of God's intrinsic properties. Because if you're timeless, then clearly you can't change like that. Well, no, where there's no time, there can't be any change. There's no before or after, and change assumes a before and after. There's a time before you change and a time after you change. If everything is present all in the very same eternal now, in the same moment of eternity, there can't be any change at all because there aren't two moments to distinguish a before and an after. Change requires that kind of a distinction, and so there can't be any change of any sort with God. Everything that is true of God in any moment is true of God in every moment, and there's only one moment, the eternal now. And so it's the strongest sense of divine immutability you can have. It's not true, however, that if God is immutable, then necessarily he's timeless. God could be unchanging in every respect, but he could be unchanging all of his intrinsic properties in, in a moment T1. And then a moment after that, he's unchanging all of his intrinsic properties in the next moment as well. So the fact that he's immutable doesn't entail that he is timeless in this sense. But timelessness doesn't tell that God is immutable in the strongest sense possible. And then also, um, just kind of, as you talked about, just a quote from the book that explains it, all temporal events are frozen in a motionless snapshot before the divine gaze. All of the temporal events brought about by God are contained in the divine act performed at the single non-temporal instant of the divine now. I know we already talked about that. I just like the way you said it there. Well, and the question is, if everything is frozen in a timeless snapshot, how do you make sense of events that are essentially temporal in the sense that they take time to occur? <laughs> okay, like lightning striking or hitting a baseball. I mean, it just just think of, of any kind of an event. If everything's frozen in a single instant before the divine gaze, I don't even know how I could talk about lightning ushering forth from a cloud and hitting a train. The lightning hitting the train isn't all at the same moment. And it seems, you can say, well, at T1, God sees the lightning bolt in the cloud. At T2, he sees the lightning bolt ushering from the cloud. At T3, he sees the lightning bolt hitting the train. So what I'm doing is I'm breaking the lightning coming and hitting the train down into something like uh, the frames of a movie, right? So that when, But now what I have are distinct times, and I'm just saying that they're all available to God all at once. But then what he's observing isn't an event. What he's observing isn't the movement. He's just observing these snapshots of instance, and there's no, but the very event of the lightning hitting the train isn't what he's observing. He's just observing snapshots of, of various states of the world. That's what's entailed by the theory of divine timelessness, and it seems to me to be something that's very difficult to talk about coherently. I imagine it being a big, giant motion blur. That's the only way I can picture it. A big smear, and that's the only way. I mean, that's just a visual, and obviously it wouldn't be like that for the people that this view, but I don't know. I think there isn't anybody who accepts this view who wouldn't say, yeah, this is very difficult for a temporal being like us to grasp. And I'm not sure I can even talk about it coherently. I define it coherently, but I think I've got a coherent idea of what it is. The whole movie is before God all at once and every instant of the frame. And you can speed this up as much as you want, have as many frames as you want. They're all before God. What isn't before God is the essence of the event, which is the movement itself. <laughs> And so it seems like there's something missing from the divine experience. All right, and then the notion of divine impassibility also follows from divine timelessness because this doctrine is a form of immutability in a narrower sense applied only to God's feeling. 
No being distinct from God can influence him to feel any differently than he does in the single instant of the eternal now. God possesses every feeling in that single instant of the eternal now that can possibly characterize the divine life. Nothing we do now in time will make God any happier or influence him to feel pain or suffer in any way. And so, like I talked about, a lot of people, at least that I have talked to about this kind of thing, they want to adopt timelessness, but they don't want to adopt these other things, and you're saying that pretty much they entail each other, and so if you adopt timelessness, you have to adopt these things as well. And Thomas Aquinas built his theology on the fact that, you know, he, he begins essentially with the cosmological argument with God as an unmoved mover, and then from that, he drives all of these divine attributes, so for instance, divine timelessness, immutability, and passibility. He drives them all logically, beginning that simple assumption of what we can call aseity and absolute actuality. So, God is actual. There's no potential in him to be something that he already isn't. And so, he's fully actual in the sense that God couldn't change in any way. He's fully actual in the sense that nothing can act on him to make any difference in him. So now you see that the notion of divine actuality, the notion that God is a say, entails timelessness, it entails passability, or impassibility, it entails immutability. So at least from the perspective, if one is truly following the best theologians in the tradition, it's not like you have a smorgasbord of divine attributes from which you can choose. Once you've accepted one, you've accepted all. And they are mutually entailing. And that's a part of, I think, what they saw as the beauty of their theology. It's like, well, gee, once I accept this idea, everything just kind of flows from it. And I can define what God is like, given the starting point that I think is strong and can't be doubted. And so I think they saw that as part of the beauty of their system. And the beauty was uh, was a mark of truth for them, I think. All right, great. We can go through these next few parts pretty quickly so we can get to the crux of the matter. Another thing it entails is that God is incorporeal and entirely immaterial. It is a consequence of relativity theory that nothing having space-like properties can fail to occupy a temporal position. Every physical event can be identified in a four-dimensional grid that defines where it occurs in terms of the three spatial dimensions and when it occurs in a fourth temporal dimension. It gives them less problems to deal with, and we'll deal with God actually being material in Mormonism in a few minutes here, but that is also entailed by timelessness. Right. God's immateriality or his incorporeality is entailed by the notion that God is timeless in the sense that we've been talking about it. And think about it, if everything is occurring all at the same eternal moment, it can't be the case that it takes time for it to travel between the outstretched arms of God. So take God has a body and he stretches his arms out like you see touchdown Jesus at Notre Dame. But you could always ask, well, how long does it take to travel the distance between his outstretched arms and the tips of his fingers for any given motion? And so the notion that something is in space and is extended entails that it is material and that it is temporal. And so it immediately follows that if something is material, it can't be timeless in this sense. All right, then, Jacob, yeah, we've covered a lot of the next part, but would you go over kind of the unique things about the next section, problems of divine timelessness? These type of problems we're looking at mainly from a Mormon perspective, because this is exploring Mormon thought after all. And a really big problem is Mormons can't adopt a view that God is timeless for a simple reason that. God is material. God the Father has a body. He is corporeal. You want to go a little bit more into that? I just did. I mean, let's ask what it is to say that God has a body. Obviously, it means if body means anything like what we mean for a human body, then it has to be extended in time and space. 
And so God can't be immaterial. He can't be outside of time. He must be in some time metric, in some inertial frame of reference, if he is a material being. And so the next thing we've got to ask is, and we'll ask this later, but what does it mean to say that God has a body? Does it mean he's stuck in one particular frame of reference and that he doesn't possess all frames of reference? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. It's important to point out that, at least in some respects, what we mean by spirit matter is not the same as what we mean by the kind of matter that physicists work with. But I'm just going to leave it that basic with this kind of discussion because it's a very, very involved discussion. Okay. Going a little bit further, not just Mormons viewing God the Father as having a body, but uh, the biblical God, we conceive of him being a personal being who is also described in human-like terms, like caring, judging, forgiving, responding, planning, all these types of things that also seem to require him to be in time. How could you do these things if you were completely outside of time? It wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, deciding means that there's something that was undecided, and then you bring it to a state of being decided. There's a before and after. Deliberating means there's a time before you have made a decision and a time after you've made a decision. Remembering means there was a before, something that occurred that you remember, and now there's a time later when you remember it. You anticipate it hasn't occurred yet, so there's two different times. Freely choosing means there's a time before which I've chosen and, and a time at which I choose and a time after I've chosen. Anything like judging, forgiving, anticipating, freely choosing, so forth. If we're going to talk about God in these terms that are presented in Scripture, then it seems to me that we're talking about a temporal being, at least a being that isn't all present in a single eternal now. So taking the Bible at its face value, I mean, you've got to understand that these people were brilliant. They had explanations saying that all of these kinds of things are anthropomorphisms. They really don't explain God as he is. These are just kinds of adaptations to speak about God. When they really don't talk straightforwardly, we have to talk about God doing these things analogically. And so we're just using analogies, and they're not really straightforward analogies. We have to retranslate them. Once we understand that God is timeless, we have to translate all of these scriptures and to say that God is really doing something different than the scriptures say that he's doing. But that's okay, because we're going to read the Bible with this assumption in mind, and that is that God is timeless. And once I believe that God is timeless, I'm going to retranslate everything into saying this is just an analogy. And the analogy has to be understood from the perspective that they really don't mean what they say. The problem is, if you believe that it really does mean what it says, then it seems that God can't be the kind of being described in the Bible. From a scholarly standpoint, the people that wrote the Bible did not hold that view. No, it's very clear that the people who wrote the Bible didn't have any idea of timeless eternity that's, for instance, Boethius or Anselm or St. Thomas Aquinas or, you know, all of the scholastics were talking about. These are ideas that were developed much later. Oscar Coleman was a biblical scholar in the 60s who looked at the idea of time in the Bible, and the conclusion he came to was that even though God may be in a different time metric than we are, and time may be different than we are, there's still a before and after for God, and there is an endless duration of time. It's not present all at once. And so the view of time presented in Scripture with respect to God isn't that which is entailed in the notion of an eternal now as defined by all of these theologians. Another problem that you bring up is Jesus uh, being the Son of God, and you share an argument that Thomas Senor came up with showing that, you know, Jesus Christ was on the earth, and he read in a synagogue at the start of his ministry before he carried a cross, so temporal predicates, they apply to him. Jesus is the Son of God, and because temporal predicates apply to the Son of God, they cannot apply to timeless beings. And so the Son of God isn't timeless because we see that 
temporal predicates do apply to him. And if you believe that he's fully divine, he, he can't be a timeless being. Yeah, there's a distinction between Jesus and the Son of God. The Son of God is the second person of the Trinity, the divine person, right? And the Son of God is this technical term, and the Son of God is timeless, in the sense that God is timeless because he is an indivisible unity with the one God, right? We have to believe in the kind of monotheism to make sense of this, but we'll get into the Trinity in the third volume. <laughs> anyway. but yeah, well, and all you have to do is take a look at the great intercessory prayer where he's talking about we are one. But that's not the issue we're addressing now. We're just addressing on the assumption that the Son of God is actually timeless. How do we make sense of the statements in Scripture that Jesus read in the synagogue before he carried his cross to Calvary? If Jesus Christ is the Son of God, in the sense of identity in any way, then temporal predicates apply to the Son of God, and we can't make sense of the Son of God being timeless. This assumes a canonic view of Christology. When we get to the two-nature theory, we're going to see the different ways, and this is the last chapter in the book, we'll see different ways in which the scholars have tried to deal with these kinds of problems. And there are myriad different ways. But at least straightforwardly, it appears from what's being asserted by the Scripture that the Son of God is the same person as Jesus. And the, you know, if we say the Son of God carried the cross after he read in the synagogue, then we have temporal predicates. And I think we do want to say those kinds of things. The Scriptures, by the way, don't make this kind of technical distinction between the Son of God as Jesus. And in fact, the Scriptures don't anticipate the Son of God is the second person of the Trinity either. So I don't want to give the, the impression that I think that's what the scriptures are saying. I think they're miles and miles away from that kind of an assertion. But at least in the tradition, that's the kind of assertion that they're trying to parse and make sense of. And I don't think it makes sense. Okay. Just one last thing I wanted to bring up under the problems is there's a real big assumption that eternalists are, are making, and that's that the B theory of time is true. There's no way this would make any sort of sense in the A theory of time. If you have a before and after with respect to God, you just straightforwardly deny that there's a single eternal now in which all past, present, and future are present. So you have to adopt the B theory of time to make sense of it. All right. I think that covers that section pretty well, unless there's anything else. Well, I want to raise one other thing, and that's the, the notion of a divine act that has a causal effect in a temporal time. How is it that there could be an act that is, you know, it seems that before God created, there was nothing created, okay? Or at least what he created didn't exist, even from God's perspective, because he has to act. So there has to be a potentiality in God with respect to his act to bring something about that hasn't already occurred. I don't know how to make sense of divine acting in terms of everything where it is present all at once in an eternal now. Also, I don't know how to make sense of an act that occurs in an eternal frame of reference, if you will, where the cause exists and effects occur in a temporal frame of reference. Because there has to be some temporal relation. Causation is a temporal notion. And how without the temporal relationship between the eternal now and the temporal present, where the past and the future may not exist, but how could you even talk about something in the eternal now having a causal effect in a temporal now? It can't make sense of it. There's another problem, and that is that most theologians recognize that God couldn't change the past. So, for instance, if we have a woman who has lost her virginity and she didn't want to lose her virginity, so she prays to God, make it so I never lost my virginity. Well, God can't answer that prayer. But if he's in the eternal now, it seems that he can answer that prayer because the time when she hasn't lost her virginity is just as present, just as real to him as the moment when she has. The problem is they're both before him all at once. And so they both have to be true. 
he can't answer that, but that means there's a change in the potency of God's ability to act because he can't affect what is going to occur with respect to what for us is future. Or he could change what's, we pray for him to change what's going to occur in the future at least. Could we pray for him to change what's in the past? And the answer most theologians have given is no. There are some arguments that have been made by classical theologians and by some modern theologians that, yeah, you can pray for the past to be changed. That, to me, entails a logical contradiction, because I have to assert, at a past time, T1, X occurred, and that's true, and God makes it so that at a past time, T1, X also did not occur. And if that's not a violation of the law of the excluded middle, I don't know what is. And so I can't make sense of that kind of a thing. You know, it just seems like an outright contradiction to me. But then I don't want to underestimate the resources and the resourcefulness of people to try to deal with these kinds of problems. So I'm never going to say it can't be resolved or addressed in a successful way. I just haven't seen it addressed in a successful way. So I'd like to just skim this more because we've talked about a lot of this already about let's give you know credit where it's due. So here... There are some reasons to adopt, at least the people have adopted this view of divine timelessness. But you start out the section by saying, Several philosophers have recently concluded that the doctrine of timelessness is merely peripheral to Christianity at best, and at worst constitutes an unwarranted intrusion of Greek thought into Christianity, which contaminates and distorts the view that God lives and acts in history. However, theists have accepted the view of timeless eternity as the proper mode of the divine life for various reasons. Would you kind of just highlight without going into too much detail, just some various reasons that are a good reason, as far as people understand, to adopt timelessness? Yeah, I mean, if you believe, for instance, that you are having an experience in which you experience there being no time, and there are these kinds of mystic experiences that people have, they're not prophetic experiences, they're not like the experiences in the Bible, but people have these mystic experiences where time just seems to go away. That may support a notion of timelessness. Those who adopt creation ex nihilo. It's very hard to make sense of a time before which God created. There would just be this eternity of nothing happening in the world and just be God up there all by himself. So it makes a lot more sense on that view if you place God outside of time. So there isn't a time before which God created the world. And maybe the theory of relativity is a way or a reason for adopting timelessness because you want to say, I can't even define a moment that is simultaneous for everybody. So saying that God has knowledge of all things that are occurring now in the present moment can't make any sense. And so the only way for me to make sense of God's knowledge is to place him outside of time. So those may be reasons for adopting divine timelessness. All right. And then past the reasons, one other thing I wanted to go into, and we don't have to spend too much time on it, but can you just kind of set this up and you, you give, we talk about concurring power and withholding it as kind of a solution. But I haven't set that up, but also could you set up what that is a solution to and why we're talking about concurring power, and then I have a question about that. Well, I don't think you've understood what it's a solution to. It's a solution to the kinds of problems that I raise. Let's say that the universe is ultimately going to collapse, because and it depends on whether the universe is open, but let's say the universe isn't open, it's closed, which means that gravity at some point will overcome the expansion of the universe, and then it will begin to contract, and then at a certain point it will totally collapse on itself. And let's get rid of the notion of a multiverse and say that the universe is simply all that exists. Or let's say that God is in one of the space-time bubbles, okay? If we adopt the notion of concurrence, God could keep the natural law of gravity from being operational by withdrawing his concurrence 
from the natural objects that are subject to gravity. Because gravity is a property of the objects, not a property independent of them. In, in other words, it's a property of mass. So if I withdraw my concurrence and there's just chaos, the universe will not collapse on itself. And that would seem to be able to solve that problem. It doesn't solve you know, all problems, but it does solve the problems where we're talking about God being at the mercy of natural law. And one of the reasons to place God outside of time is that if he's inside of time, it seems like he would be at the mercy of the universe, the physical universe. And so I'm just addressing that kind of a problem. Relating to that, that was in the middle of this discussion, but the challenges presented by the special theory of relativity and the general theory of relativity are especially hard for Mormons because unlike, as far as I know, all other Christian faiths that are currently in existence, God the Father is literally material and he has a body. And as Joseph Smith has said, it's not just some puppet that he's using, it's his actual body, and it's as tangible as any man's. Even if it's a glorified body, it has to have spatio-temporal extension and be located within three dimensions of space, and even a fourth dimension defined by, you know, time, temporal coordinate. And so, you talk about how the Father's body is like a human body, but let's define that. So, the Father may have a body in some sense distinctively like a human body, but it doesn't mean it's merely a human body. Let's make the distinction. First, God has a body. It's not accurate to say that God just is a body. There's a lot more to God than just being a body. So, for instance, the light of God, his, what I want to say is power and the source of his knowledge, extend from his physical presence to fill the immensity of space. And so, in every single moment, God can obtain information light years away without having to go through some mediator. And so, I don't want to say, well, it takes God 3.4 years to know what's going on at Proxima Centauri. I don't want to say that. I want to say that God has everything before him all at once that is occurring at this moment. So God's knowledge isn't based upon some temporal process or some physical process. It's based upon him being like in an immediate wormhole to every aspect of reality. So it's, what I want to say is that the notions that we have about God being limited by the speed of light and so forth, even though he's a temporal being, we certainly don't want to say that he's limited by the speed of light in terms of accessing information or acting. Let's say that God is a physical body. It means he has to exist at some place and some time in the physical universe. Let's place him next to Kolob, whatever that means. And let's say the Kolob is 900 million light years away. Well, God can't act very quickly. He couldn't even act in my lifetime to respond to my prayers. So I can't limit God in that way. I wouldn't make any sense of any of the scriptures to limit God in that way. So if I'm going to take this to its scientific conclusion, I can't make any sense. So this is my critique of, for instance, Mormon transhumanism, where they want to say that God is like an amazing scientist. I don't see any way to make sense of this kind of transhumanism with the kinds of assertions that are made about God. I know there are a lot of transhumanists, but I just think they're mistaken, and I don't think what they're saying is in any way consistent with Mormon scripture. So what I want to say is that the relationship that God has to the entire universe is one of immediate presence and one of immediate access. When I'm talking about his body, I don't want to say that's a body just like mine and yours. When he appeared in the Gospel of John, it points out, I mean, it goes out of its way to point out that he appeared the doors and windows being shut. The notion was he went right through the walls. My body doesn't go through walls. When he ascended, he ascended apparently violating the laws of gravity. When he appeared, he appeared out of nothing. He didn't have to walk there. He didn't have to 
travel in a car. He just appeared there, apparently out of a dimension already there that gave him access, and he could just be there. So when I'm talking about God having a body, I'm going to have to modify very significantly what it means to say that God's body, his glorified body, is just limited and, and like mine. It's not merely not limited in the sense that it's not subject to death and deterioration like my body. It's also not subject to the kinds of temporal limitations in terms of acting in time that my body is. So I'm going to have to scrutinize this idea and say, what does it mean for God to have a body? And I think what it means is that God appears, he has a body, but it, it, he has to exist in some kind of dimension that gives him access to all dimensions in the temporal universe all at once. And so what I want to say is God is an interdimensional body. His body can access all dimensions, and that there are dimensions that have access to all different realities. We're going to have to get into string theory to begin to make sense of this, and I'm not going to do that. But there is a very long discussion that we need to have about what it means for God to have a body. And the other thing is, when I say, so for instance, this is a problem that exists with contingent theory of omniscience that I adopted. I say that God doesn't know the future, but he does know everything that's occurring now, and he knows everything that occurred in the past. But there doesn't seem to be a now that is true of all inertial frames of reference. So how could I say, if I'm on a train moving at nine-tenths the speed of light, how can I say that God knows what's occurring now when the person who's on the side of the train, things are occurring in a different now for him? Now seems to be different for every inertial frame of reference. And so what I want to do is find an overarching frame of reference from which there can be access to every inertial frame of reference. And to say that God can then take and cognitively synthesize these all into one moment of consciousness. What exactly that would be like certainly transcends my experience. What I want to say is there's a notion of cosmic time. And one notion that readily lends itself to this kind of a notion is a frame of reference that's associated with the edge of cosmic expansion of the Big Bang. And so the galaxies are expanding away from this moment of the Big Bang at mutual recessional velocities. But the universe would then constitute a natural clock calibrated by the universe as a whole. So we know that the universe as a whole exists, but we can't access it. There are regions of the universe that, because they're moving away from us at the speed of light, we can't access it. The time is too much, and we can't get to them anymore. But that doesn't mean that they don't exist and that a being like God couldn't access them. So we cannot, we can't know the universe as a whole because some regions are inaccessible to us and our own measuring devices would then conspire against us to prevent a measurement of all inertial frames of reference for us because we exist in an inertial frame of reference. But if I were a being that's described, for instance, in section 88, that is present to all realities in, in the universe, if I'm truly present to all of them, then I'm in every inertial frame of reference. And so I would have access to every inertial frame of reference. And just as people enter in and out of frames of reference, God enters in and out of frame of reference and synthesizes them all in a synthetic moment of um, unified consciousness to bringing them all into one frame of reference for him, which includes all of those frames of reference. And his time horizon then would be defined by a time horizon where we take all of the frames of reference and there would be an absolute future in the time cone of all of the present frames of reference that are future to him, there will be events that are in the past of the time cone of all reference frames, and there will be a vast range of nows that are all present in his now. So his now is stretched out much larger than ours.
And so if we're going to redefine God's knowledge and what it means to say that he knows things now in terms of the special theory of relativity, we're going to say God is in a stretched frame of reference for what is included in his now. And how long that is, I would have to go through the transformation equations that are available under the, in the special theory of relativity. But it's doable. It's very difficult, but it's doable. Um, and so this is something that's coherent. It's certainly beyond our ability to access, but that doesn't mean it's beyond God's ability to access. So even given the Mormon view, we're going to have to begin to talk about God's experience being so far beyond ours that it, we really can't cognize what it would be like. It's, it's just beyond us. And maybe from his perspective, what we would want to say is it seems like the kind of time that we have just really doesn't exist. There's a before and an after, but I'm not sure that our time metric makes much difference to God. So let me say this. The overarching time frame that God possesses, I call omnitemporality. That is, he includes within his experience all inertial frames of reference. It's an omni. He includes them all. But it's a temporal frame of reference. So what he has is an omnitemporal frame of reference. And that's why I call it omnitemporality. First off, is there any way that you can kind of sum up what you just went over really simply? Because even for, not that I'm super smart, but even for me, again, I've read the book and tried to make sense of it. That was kind of like whew, above my head a little bit just because it was. Yeah, it's easy. All right, can you just sum up like that this is just kind of a way to make sense of it within relativity just because we realize we have to deal with that. Obviously, we don't know everything about it. This is just we've confronted with these realities as far as we understand them from science, and then we have to make sense of them as far as God goes. Yeah, let me give you a thought experiment that will make sense of all these. Assume that you have access to all minds, just call it a hive mind, at once. It's certainly doable. I mean, you know, just assume that you are united with everybody in the sense that John 17 talks about, so that everybody else's experience is included within your experience. It follows that every time frame within an inertial frame of reference will be within your immediate awareness. Just given that, you would have omnitemporality because you would be aware of everything that's occurring in every given inertial frame of reference. Now, the problem is in, in the special theory of relativity, this some frames of reference are not causally accessible to other frames of reference. But we would want to say that all inertial frames of reference are available to God within the scope of his presence to all things in the universe. And so he transcends our notion of time. He transcends our way of being. But that doesn't mean that he transcends all judgments of before and after and temporality. He's still subject to a temporality. There's still an eternal present for him. The past has still receded into the past and doesn't exist, and there's still a future relative to where he is in his omnitemporal frame of reference. That makes sense then. So the problem for us, at least as far as the special theory of relativity going, is we can't be in more than one frame of reference at one time, no matter what. We can't comprehend that. But you're saying God, since he is basically experiencing all of these different frames of reference, though they're different frames of reference and time is passing differently in them, they're all happening to him at once. It doesn't matter how if one's way slower than the other one in comparison, he's still experiencing all of it. Right. So what we're saying is God is imminent in all reality. To be imminent means he's present to all reality. Therefore, all inertial frames of reference are included within the scope of his experience. Another way of saying that. It's not a problem. It's, I was trying to emphasize the problem that people 
point out as far as frame of reference is the our limitations not necessarily just because we can't possibly from one frame of reference make sense of all the frames of reference but doesn't mean that they don't all happen it just means not one limited being can comprehend them all they clearly all happen the problem is if we say that god is limited by the speed of light then there are some inertial frames of reference that he can't access because he would then be within an inertial frame of reference. So we're forced to say God is not limited by the speed of light in this sense. And so the question is, how is it that a temporal being in the nature of God who has a body is not limited by the speed of light? So what we have to say is, well, when we say that God has a glorified body, we mean a body that has a relationship to the light that proceeds from his presence to fill the immensity of space, as the NC88 says, in a way that is different than the relationship that we have to the light that reaches our body from the sun. It's, it's different. And so this complicates what we want to say about God, but this is a logical way of addressing God's relationship to time. Okay. All right. Um, is there anything else before I read the conclusion? Nope. I think the conclusion is a good and accurate one and a good summation. I'm just going to read it straight from the book. The conclusion says, I conclude that God is omnitemporal in the sense that he is not limited by our own temporal dimensions. God is not in our measured time. His being includes within all temporal frames which exist now, referring to now in the sense of the ontological present which defines what is really actual at any given moment of the universe's existence. This now does not possess all at once all past and future events. God has temporal horizon beyond which it is logically and physically impossible to see. All instants that exist in any temporal frame God knows, acts upon, and is acted upon immediately. I think that this view accurately captures the Mormon view of God's relation to space-time. Yeah, the only modification I would make to that is to say, well, I think this actually captures what is a live option for a Mormon view of God's relation to space-time. If somebody comes up with a better view, explaining another possibility for God's relationship to time in Mormonism, I think we ought to be all ears to listen and be open to that possibility. All right, fair enough. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploring Mormon thoughts.